Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Holy Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that that's not, I thank you that it's not snow outside, though I know that there are a lot of people who would wish that it was. We thank you for your love. We thank you for giving us reasoning minds because we know in some way, though we may not know exactly how, since we're made in your image, we have a better understanding of who you are because of the way our flawed thinking works. We go, wow. And you tell us to reason with you. Come, let us reason together, you say. So, Lord, we pray that as we go through this stuff and try to get a better appreciation of where our culture is as far as what they think and why, you know, why they think it. And uh, we would be uh, an introspective people that we would examine ourselves and say, well, gee, maybe this is the way I th- and the reason I, maybe this is the reason I think the way I think about certain things. And the whole goal is to make us more like you. So Lord, we pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Who remembers our scripture passage for this class? Did I see a hand? I did. Mr. Tewksbury, do you remember? Colossians 2, verse 8. Would you read it for the class, please? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceits, according to human tradition, according to the elements of spirits of the world, not according to Christ. See that no one takes you captive. So, the implication is that they can take you captive, right? I mean, if you're supposed to guard against being taken captive, it means that you could be taken captive. So, again, the reason for this class, it is entirely possible that we may unconsciously, without really thinking about it, have been snuck up on and ambushed by the guerrilla thoughts of our time or even previous times. So, last week, we had some things to ponder for this week because we had tried to talk about Kant and we found that we can't really. You knew that was coming. You knew that one was coming, right? right up there with Plato and Socrates, right? Things to ponder. How often do you encounter people who consider themselves virtuous because they try to do the right thing? Okay? And then do you ever ask them how they know what the right thing to do is? Like, oh, I'm a good person. I try to do the right thing. Like, well, how do you know what the right thing is? Oh, well, I just fill in the blank. What do they say? Have you ever asked him? Josh was nodding his head. It just feels right. It feels right, yes. Is that what you were going to say, something similar? You didn't hear what I said? Oh, you didn't hear what she said. She said, because it feels right. Yeah. And of course, we all know the famous marketing slogan, if it feels right, or if it feels good, do it. And then of course, we have it 
abbreviated because we had a shorter intelligence span by the late, late 80s, early 90s where we just said, just do it, right? Just do it, because it feels good. And, and the interesting thing is if you try this with, when you're doing like a history of philosophy sort of thing, is a component with your history class in high schoolers, and you say this, you say, how do you know what the right thing is? Well, if they've been raised in the church, and fewer and fewer of them are, what they're gonna say is, pray and read my Bible, right? They have, the three, they have the three classic answers for all Christians. They have it memorized by the time they're fifth or sixth graders. Okay, what's, what's the answer? It's either Jesus or pray and read your Bible, right? Or there's the other answer, three-letter word, sin, right? So why do we do sin? Well, how should we pray and read our Bible, right? Not to mock it, but it's funny how that can get in and then you get to be an adult and you go, well, but what you do, and where do we live now, Cindy? We live in a point where if it feels good and you feel like doing it, you do it. But it may not be what I feel like doing, so then I just do it. But you mean your own trip. Yeah. Kind of bump up against each other. Yeah, yeah. Because it makes for harmonious living when everybody's just out there doing their own thing. That works really well. Well. In nobody's universe. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here, Greg, because I know you'll answer this. If I ask you. No, man, I'm really glad you're here. Would we see that in the church since we see it in culture? Of course. Why? Okay, all right. Okay. I just, unless we get too focused on looking out and saying, wow, those people, you know. Amy worked at 12 to 8, so we're both kind of either, we're both going on not a lot of sleep, so if I'm a little off the chain, I apologize. I feel like I'm maybe a little too much, but it's true. So if we look at where we've been, we have the, pr well, that didn't translate well. I gave you that? That's not what it looks like on my screen. Mine looks all sophisticated. This looks like a child did it. All right. Yeah, where have we been? Pre-Christian, sophists. Who remembers what the sophists believed, what they said? I know this is the way back machine for some of you. It's been, what, two weeks? I don't think you were here. What? Essentially question everything. No, that's not the sophists. Anybody remember what the sophists? I saw you nodding your head, ma'am. Right, they manipulate with speech. They're the rhetoricians. They're the guys that say whatever they have to say to get you to do or give them whatever they want. And then they go out, and this is a beautiful thing. It's Madison Avenue before there was Madison Avenue. They teach other people how to do it. It's all about selling, right? It's all about manipulating. Not too different from, well, probably shouldn't say this, but you know, it is political season time again. We see a lot of that too. 
Then we have the realists, and Plato is an example of a realist. Remember what a realist does or thinks? It's actually the opposite of what you would think. You guys remember the illustration of the tree? There's the tree, and then somewhere, somewhere else, is the ideal version of the tree. So you're a realist if you see that tree as kind of like a shadow, and then somewhere there's the actual tree. And the tree that is somewhere else is the living embodiment, the soul of treeness. Are you feeling groovy, Greg? Are you? Okay. Sorry, I didn't have any bell bottoms. All right, and then we go to probably whatever the next one is. <laughs> Nominalist, Aristotle. Does anybody remember what Aristotle said? Because Plato was Aristotle's teacher, remember? And Aristotle decided to, like so many students, go his own way. And it wasn't that his way was bad. Does anybody remember what that was? What Aristotle said? Bueller, anyone? Bueller? So Plato looks at the tree, and Plato says, it's a beautiful tree, and somewhere there is an actual ideal tree, and it is the embodiment of treeness, and this tree is just a reflection of that ideal treeness. Aristotle looks at the tree and he goes, oh, that's a Fagus grandiflora. That is a beech tree. That is a... That is, that is, that, that tree is a tree. It's a beech tree. It has, it's deciduous. It, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's a tree. And that tree is different from the tree that is next to it, which is an azalea tree, right? Or not an azalea, magnolia tree, right? Which you don't ever want your magnolias next to your beaches. They don't really mix very well, but. Yeah, I didn't know that. Do you know magnolia trees? They put out stuff to kill other trees. They're murderers. <laughs> All right, so that was our ancient. And then we go on to our Christian, which is we're going where we've been. Christian thought, I know, you're like, wait a minute, Galileo wasn't a Christian. Yeah, he was. Because he was doing the scientific method. He got, gets his telescope, he grinds it, he looks at the moon, he does the math, and he goes, wait a minute. That's moving, but the earth is moving. But the sun, wait, we're going around the sun. Hello, hello. He's not the first one to think about that, but he's the guy that actually looked at the telescope and said, hey, this is more than just a mathematical proof. So you have Galileo, and then you have Descartes. He's got his cogito ergo sum, which everybody knows that one, right? Even if you weren't here for that, it is what, Josh? You heard me, right? I? Therefore I am. Okay, good. And then we've got Hume, the guy that we all love to hate. Hume, skepticism on causality. Can we really know anything? Uh, was it the billiard ball that moved that hit the other billiard ball? Or was it the guy with the cue? Or, gee, I just don't know. Actually, he was Scottish, so it's probably more like, Oy! 
I don't know, laddie. Let's have a wee bit of haggis. All right. And I thought, as I was looking at this, one of the, some of the things that kept coming up to me were, I think it might help the class to see things in a timeline. And I love timelines, as my students will tell you, though I don't do them like this in front of the students. But I, what I thought I'd like to do is I'd like to show you the progression of where we've been and, how, and where we're headed and how we're getting there. So we've done a little review of where we've been the last couple of weeks, but then I'm throwing this up here because I want you guys to see just kind of like all, how all this stuff is happening in context. So if you look at the timeline, you see in 1607, we got Jamestown established. Everybody around here, everybody who lives here knows that. It's right down the road. You can, you know, use your good neighbor pass or whatever and go and see it. Two years later is when Galileo has taken his telescope and he begins observing the moon with, his, with it. All right, all that's happening about the same time. 1618, Sir Walter Raleigh is executed, which is the same year that you get the defenestration of Prague. Does everybody ever, people know what the defenestration of Prague? That's when the Bohemian Protestants got so mad at the Holy Roman Emperor's representatives that they opened up the window in a castle and threw them 72 feet out the window. And the only reason that they didn't die, though they were badly bruised and shaken up and messed up, is because when they threw them out, I don't know if you know this, but when you uh, have to go to the bathroom in the castle, usually what happens is it goes off the side of the wall and then down into what in this case was a dry moat. So when they threw these guys out, they landed on generations of... Got it? Got it? And that actually kicks off because they're Protestants, but they're supposed to be under the domination of the Catholic Holy Roman Empire. That kicks off a war that lasts 30 years. And I put three stars next to it because that is a war that does a whole lot to contribute to the way Descartes thinks. Because it starts off as a war of religion, Catholic versus Protestants, and by the time it's done, 30 years later, basically what you have is warring nation states where you have Catholics and Protestants versus other Catholics. And that's basically where you stop having any kind of medieval thought. And remember medieval, by my definition, is a very broad category. That's where you start to get the whole idea of, hmm, maybe this Divine right of kings isn't such a good idea. So two years after the Thirty Years' War begins, you have Plymouth and the Mayflower Compact, Plymouth Colony and the Mayflower Compact. That's for you folks that know and love United States history to help keep you in perspective. Then in 1623, a mere three years after the Pilgrims, Galileo publishes this book called The Assayer where he starts putting this stuff out. And that gets him into hot water with the Catholic Church, particularly the Inquisition, which nobody likes to be in hot water with the Inquisition because nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. In this case, it was the Italian Inquisition, but you know, it's just different accents and different hand gestures. 1637. What 
1637, Descartes published his Discourse on Method, and that's where we get the, uh, I have to have these four assumptions. I have to assume that my senses are giving me good information. I have to uh, go down the list. 1642, Galileo died. 1648, you get the Thirty Years' War ending with the Peace of Westphalia, which is where everybody kind of says, you know, I think we've killed enough peasants and we've had enough plague and enough famine and enough starvation. Maybe we should take a break for a while. Maybe it's not worth killing each other over. Next. And no sooner did they figure that out. Meanwhile, the reason the English haven't really been messing around in the Thirty Years' War is because they're busy killing each other. And in 1649, they decide that King Charles I of England, King Charles Stuart, he, he is a treasonous person and needs to have his head separated from his body, which they do. We skip a lot of stuff and we jump down to Bacon's Rebellion because that happened in our backyard on the other side of the river. Oh, and we burned Jamestown, right? And then in 1688, everything gets squared away because you no sooner get the restoration of the crown in 1660 in England, and then in 1688 you have your glorious revolution where William and Mary come to the throne and they are the monarchs of England. And that empowers Locke because Locke had been sort of being persecuted and had fled the country when uh, Charles II, Charles I's uh, son took over. And then James II, his brother, took over. Locke is in Holland when he publishes his essay concerning human understanding. And their sources disagree as to whether it was published first in 88 or 89. I think it's a much of a muchness, but we'll put it down. And we all remember that Locke was the one who said we had no basic what? We were born what? Remember? Yeah, blank slate. We have no innate ideas. We only know through sense and through experience. And we can go on ad infinitum defining sensation, but basically it's smell, touch, taste here. And then to kind of give you an idea, it's just a few, relatively a few years later that Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher was born. Three years after him, we have Benjamin Franklin born. So you see how we're kind of moving Locke's ideas aren't that old when some of these fellows who will take them to the next level, so to speak, are born. Uh, so you have Benjamin Franklin. Hume was born in 1711. The great Samuel Davies was born in 1723, pastor here in Virginia of the Great Awakening. We go on. Kant was born in 1724. Washington was born 1732, Adams is born in 1735, Patrick Henry, 1736, 1739, George Whitfield, the great awakening, the great, the divine dramatist. He's preaching in Williamsburg, Virginia in 1739, right down there, Bruton Parish Church. And in 1743, that squeaker Thomas Jefferson is born. And that he's, he's younger than the other guys. 1750 is when Montesquieu writes The Spirit of the Laws where he starts talking about separation of powers. So that's, look at that. That's kind of a fairly new idea when we finally embody it here in the United States. 1754, that's when the French and Indian War actually begins in North America. 
because George Washington gets an itchy trigger. No, it's not. He didn't get an itchy trigger finger. It was, he did give the command, though. And then uh, we have the birth of Louis XVI of France. And then you've got Braddock's defeat in 1755. 1756, the Seven Years' War begins in Europe because Frederick the Great invades Silesia. Boy, was that a mistake. And then in 1765, shortly after the war, seven, year war, seven Years' War ends in 1763, then you get the Stamp Act, no taxation without representation. 1775, American Revolution begins. 76, Declaration of Independence. The American Revolution ends with the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Four years later, we have our Constitutional Convention. We ratify it within two years. 1789, France has got the Declaration of the Rights of Man. That's kind of the beginning of the French Revolution. 1793, execution of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. right? George Washington dies in 1799. He does not live to see the next century. Then you've got that dude, Napoleon, 1808 to 1814. In all that context, Karl Marx, shortly after that, is born. He's born in 1818. We're going to talk about him today. 1838, you've got the Chartist movement, which is not really as socialist as every historian would like you to believe. But that's when the folks in England are starting to say, you know, it might be better if every man had a vote for members of parliament. Is that unreasonable? Would it be unreasonable to ask for a living wage? Would it be unreasonable to say, hey, uh, maybe we have some rights that you guys aren't letting us have? Then we'll skip ahead to the Mexican War because in 1846, that's when it starts. That's when we start fighting over the Rio Grande and we wind up in 1848, the United States winds up getting what is now Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, California, huge tracts of land. 1848, we have the year of revolution in Europe, revolutions in France. Germany, Austria, Hungary, Poland, Belgium, and Holland. Well, the Belgians separate from the Dutch, which everybody forgets. And then that's the same year that the Communist Manifesto is published. It's published in France during that time because Marx sees his opportunity, he and Engels He's like, oh, publish it now, publish it now. That's the first iteration of it. It's got 30-something iterations, the Communist Manifesto. Make your brain slide out your ear. Okay. So, where does that leave us? Questions? No? Okay. No. No, there won't be a test. There will be judgment, though. <laughs> this is me silently judging you, Greg. Okay. All right, so we're definitely post-Christian with Locke. And this is to remind us what Locke said. 
in this essay concerning human understanding. God has given us no innate ideas of himself, though he has stamped no original characters on our mind wherein we may read his being. And then Kant carries it to the next step where he says, man and generally any rational being exists as an end in himself. This is not to mean that Locke would have agreed with Kant. It's just Kant takes that next step. Man and generally any rational being exists as an end in himself, not merely as a means to be arbitrarily used by this or that will. Not arbitrarily used. Man exists as an end to himself. So then the question becomes, what is the end that man is supposed to have? Well, Kant keeps going. And he says the foundation of this principle is rational nature exists as an end in itself. This rational emphasis moved Western thought from what philosophers called the moral law. The moral law is, it's wrong to, there's some things that you just kind of know are wrong either because of God's revelation or because it's written on your heart. We know that it's wrong to kill people. We know that it's wrong to take stuff that belongs to somebody else and say, fine, right? I mean, we get into fights in the sandbox when we're three years old over stuff like that, right? This is my choo-choo. This is my, right? Mom, she ate my ice cream. Mom, he used my hairbrush. Mom, he shaved my Barbie's head. This rational episode, that never happened, by the way. This rational emphasis moved Western thought from what philosophers called moral law. Because wait a minute, if that's all stuff that's not really real in the sense that you can't observe it, I mean, that's, that's the legacy of the deists, these, these folks that uh, felt inspired by Locke, become very materialistic. They say if you can't measure it, if you can't touch it, if you can't taste it, because remember Locke says you can only know through sense and experience. Have you ever, uh, Lanning, have you ever, like, touched God, right? No. Have you ever actually, you know, recorded his voice? No. So, you know, for some people, they, they would say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's fine for you. It's, it's good. You know, it's a little weird. But that's okay. So the question then becomes, if, we don't, if we're not supposed to love God with all our heart, if we're not supposed to honor him in our thought, word, and deed, what is the purpose of man's existence? Why am I here? Hegel struggles with this. He's a German philosopher. I would have put his, I figured out how to do pictures, and I would have put his portrait, but it was really scary, so. <laughs> no, I bless his heart, I think he was really ill when they painted it, which I don't know why he wanted his portrait painted when he was ill, but Georg Hegel, he was born in 1770, so he's born right smack before the American Revolution starts, and he dies 1831, and he said, I'm distilling what he said, what is rational is real, and what is real is rational. This is possible if the understanding that we have sees things in terms of clear contrast. And by the way, understanding does see things that way. 
the very, you know, it's a kind of a yin and a yang thing. You've ever seen one of those symbols? You know, it's got black on one side and white on the other, and it's got the little squiggle in the middle. It's, there's contrasts. Light, dark, up, down, dead, alive. There's contrasts. And understanding sees those things. We make those comparisons, right? This is pink. This is not pink, right? Uh, next slide. And this means we have to have a grid to look at things. And Hegel's grid was history. And he said this means that history unfolds in a dialectic process. Dialectic meaning the opposites, which is how man can understand and understand and connect with the, what he called the absolute spirit. You notice how they keep going back with their ontology when they, they keep pulling back to the study of first causes. They keep coming to that whole idea that Aristotle had of the unmoved mover. There's something that's moving stuff, but in and of itself is not moved. There's, there's something, but we can't call it God because why? We don't have revelation or we can't call it God because we can't measure it right because we're rationalists or we call it we can't really call it what we want to call it because we don't know for sure if we're skeptics like him we don't really know that it's the cause of everything but logic says it must be but can we trust our logic and cogito ergo sum and oh my gosh so the dialectic means the tension between ideas and this is this sets it up and the whole reason we're going into this guy whoop is we're setting up Marx, because he's the one that we're really gonna focus on today. Hegel continued, the starting point for dialectic starts with a thesis. So G class, can anybody tell me, don't flip the slide, what is the opposite of a thesis? A little bit louder, please. There we go, so, by examining the thesis, there may sometimes, not all the time, which I liked, I appreciated that he said that, may sometimes be an opposite idea called an antithesis. There may be truth, uh-oh, a little bit of relativism here. There may be truth in both parts. The, the, what? Who wrote this? The tension between the thesis and the antithesis, if resolved, is called a synthesis. I have to talk to my secretary. All right. <laughs> for, for, no, I was talking about myself. I was, I was, you're my assistant. You're my, you're my, you're my, uh, yeah, you're my thesis. You're my assistant. Yes. He assists me. I'm Tim, the tool man Taylor. If resolved, this is called a synthesis. The synthesis, see, ooh, and here's how this just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. The synthesis then becomes the new thesis, and this is how history moves forward. Okay, you have the peasants, and you have the nobles, and they can't quite come together, so the peasants and the nobles have a giant fight, and then there's a synthesis, and it goes forward. Right? I don't know. What is there something on my face? Said, this is why we have alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I can't wait to see what this slide looks like. 
the next one. All right. I try. I had the little crayon, and I was trying to draw a triangle in, on, a, on the pad, and it was terrible. So I did this. So he has the synthesis becomes, so just kind of imagine the triangle. The synthesis is the peak of the triangle. You have the thesis that's becoming. You have the antithesis. This is Hegel's first triad. And this is adapted from a very nice drawing by R.C. Sproul, which I could not reproduce because I lacked the technical skill. But yeah, yeah, this is the antithesis. Thank you. I deserve that, probably. Thesis is becoming, the antithesis is non-being, and the synthesis is becoming. That's his first triad, and he had a whole bunch of these, which, you know, as Greg said, if you're into alcohol, that might be helpful when you're looking at them. Either that or it just becomes more confusing, and you say, I think I'll just go and take out the trash or something. <laughs> and it's in this context that Marx walks into the picture. Karl Marx, as we said, was born in 1818. He made it all the way to 1883. He was born in Germany to Jewish parents. Every single biography I looked at likes to point that out. I don't know why that is significant. I guess maybe if you pull back the layers on his parents, there's some kind of childhood something there. But he, it's a, he has a fairly decent life. I mean, they're upper middle class-ish. And then he goes on to study the classics. You know, he had his Greek and his Latin. He went to Berlin to study law and philosophy. And that's, Berlin was where Hegel's philosophy was regnant. Like it was, it was the ruling thing. If you're in the university, we see the universities have always been places where the new ideas, or at least the new cultural ascendant, culturally ascendant ideas are. So in Berlin in this time, it was Hegel's philosophy with the emphasis on the dialectic. And later there was a fellow named Feuerbach whose emphasis was on materialism. God was created in the image of man, not man created in the image of God. We make God up. God didn't really exist. And so Marx is trying to make his way and figure out who he is and what he believes and all this kind of stuff. And he walks into this soup. And of course, this is getting building up to the year of revolution. And remember, there was a revolution in 1848 in Germany. It wasn't like pitchforks and fire. It was a lot of strong men talking in severe accents. But he becomes involved in the political movements, Marx does, taking place in Germany at this time. And we're talking about 1835, 1842. And his contribution to all of this is becoming, he becomes a political writer, which because Prussia, at this time is pretty much a police state. It's a gentle police state, relatively speaking, but it is a police state. So that immediately puts him under uh, police observation. And that's going to be the, that kind of starts the track for the rest of his life. He becomes a political writer. He is at first socialist. And we all remember what the famous quote is, uh, uh, communism, uh, socialism is communism dressed up for Halloween. Oh, well, I don't remember. I can't attribute it. I don't remember who said it, but 1848-3, Marx married, moved to Paris, and this is where socialism was the ruling political idea. The, the uh, 
the government under Louis-Philippe, the bourgeois monarch in France, was actually using French money to fund public works projects to provide work for people who were out of work, because this is one of those unfortunate and un, uh, unanticipated historical consequences. Uh, if you go to the historical note, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing at this time, and in Britain and in France, people were leaving the countryside for the cities to find work, work that increasingly evolved the use of machines, which meant that a lot of them weren't really needed, but they didn't have the skill sets to find whatever the next job was. And of course, there weren't job placement programs, there wasn't job education, you know, professional education where, oh, well, these people need people, but they need, you need to be educated to take this job, you know, that kind of thing. So Marx sees all of this, he sees people not being able to feed themselves, he sees the government uh, sort of doing what it can or not doing what it should. He gets kind of agitated and he starts writing more and he comes up with his philosophy. And key points in his philosophy is that progress is inevitable, that dialectic is going to just roll, it's just a rolling thing. And theology and metaphysics are ideological, they're produced by society, so they're not really useful, right? They're just that, uh, the quote that he allegedly said, where religion is the opiate of the masses, right? Or what we now say, you know, it's, it's nice for you, keep going. And the dialectic that exists is not the idealism of Hegel. Hegel actually believe that as you go through the triads, you're actually gonna get better and better and better and there'll be some pie in the sky at the end, but rather a dialectical materialism. Definition. Marx said that man was not homo sapiens, man the wise, but homo faber, man the maker. So it's all about what you make. It's all about production. It's all basically reduced to economics. And that brings us to the Communist Manifesto. Yep, there's Marx. Great big bushy beard. That man had such a miserable life. Do you realize he survived three of his children? <laughs> yeah, he lost three kids, two of them girls. That had to hurt. Um, important quotes from the Communist Manifesto. The history of the hitherto existing, all hitherto existing society. Notice that massive assumption, all hitherto existing society, is the history of class struggles. That's your dialectic. Our epoch, and of course he and Engels are writing in the 1840s, our epoch, the epoch of the bourgeoisie, possesses, however, this distinct feature. It has simplified class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Now, gee, where are we hearing similar thoughts right now? Well, no, it's a jargon term, but where, See, see how everything is being reduced? It's either this or it's that. 
you are either this or you're that. And if you're this and not that, or that and not this, you have to be in an antagonistic struggle with whatever you're not. You cancel the other. <laughs> yeah, you cancel. You're either plus or you're negative. You can't have any kind of bonding between the ions. Oh no, these things repel each other, right? And eventually, anticipating Darwin, eventually only one of them is gonna come out on top. It's law of tooth and claws. Explanatory note, Marx and Engels reduced mankind into two categories, each hostile to the other. The bourgeoisie, they're the owners of capital. They're the haves. Proletariat, all of you know, a lot of you know this because you were like me and you grew up and survived the Cold War, right? Proletariat, the workers, the have-nots. Two great camps. Antagonism. But wait, there's more. We're going to end this antagonism. We're going to end this antagonism with communism. And the proletariat will eventually, by revolution, replace and supplant the bourgeoisie and then will, utopia alert, Make life better for all by doing the following. As soon as we get rid of the what we aren't and start taking what we have, we're going to do this. We return to the man. What? The bourgeois, you go to the one that says the bourgeois family will vanish as a matter of course because families only exist to acquire and keep capital. When its complement vanishes, and both will vanish with the vanishing of capital. It will also, it also will prevent child exploitation for capital by the parents. So we're gonna get rid of families. Says the man who actually had a family. We're gonna get rid of families. We're gonna keep going. We're gonna to need to change education because education is really important. Education will need to be changed. The communists have not invented the intervention of society into education. They do but seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. Right? So we have fights about what a family is. In this time, you know, the communists are like, hey, we have fights about family, so we're going to get rid of families. They won't be recognizable anymore. And we have fights about the nature of education and what should be on a curriculum. So we're going to just fix that. We're going to tell you what's on it. You don't have any say in it. Gee, I know this is hard to imagine happening in any day and age. But wait, there's more. What about religion? Marx continues, the ideas of religious liberty and freedom of conscience merely give expression to the sway of free competition within the domain of knowledge. And competition is bad because that's where we get all of these people in poverty is because of competition. So the ideas of religious liberty and freedom, we gotta get rid of those. Let's go on, it should say, there are besides eternal truths, such as freedom and justice, people are reacting. They say, but wait a minute, what about freedom, justice? Um, what about all that? They're common to all states of society, but communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality. Instead, of constituting them on a new base, and instead constituting them on a new basis, it therefore acts in contradiction to all past historical experience. 
That means things are going to be weird and you're going to love it. And towards the end of the manifesto, they wrote, the proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest, by degree, all capital from the bourgeois to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state. The proletariat will be organized as the ruling class. And of course, in the beginning, after increasing productive forces as rapidly as possible, this cannot be affected except by means of despotic inroads into the right of property. <laughs> so we're going to take your property, we're going to abolish your religion, we're going to abolish your family, we're going to change what you learn, and it's going to be great. You're going to love it. Because then we will have parrot, well, utopia, lowercase u. And if we keep going, In the end, for Marx, it is all about what he believes to be true. Because, you know, that's the logical step he's coming from, right? It's what I believe is true and about control and will. As opposed to, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I don't think it's an accident that Marx suffered terribly during his life. But in Marx's case, misery loves company, right? And of course, many of you know firsthand because you lived through it, or you've seen the effects of it, what this philosophy does when it's implemented in various parts of the world. And yet, like many zombie philosophies, it will not die. Way more, way more, this philosophy, this, this dialectic materialism, you can see we had to go through what we went through in the previous classes so you guys could see the logic, you know, this stuff is logical in the sense that if this, then this, if that, then this, this is the next logical step. And next week, which will be our last week, we'll, we'll go beyond uh, dialectic materialism and we'll get to what happens when you uh, say, oh, well, that doesn't work. So let's go to the next thing. I don't want to spoil what the next thing is, but I think you can guess. <laughs> All right. We don't have a lot of time, but are there any questions? I'm available after class. My office hours. Yes, Josh. Can you explain a little bit more about the study of capital? Oh, capital. is It's uh, the means of production. So if you have a factory, you're not going to have a factory anymore. If you have money in the bank that's collecting interest, you're not going to have that anymore. That all needs to go to the, basically the state. Yeah. Because, you know, if you keep a hold of it, you're going to use it for you. And that just wouldn't be, you know, right. Tim? I think I know why it's always brought up that Marcus was born of Jewish parents. Oh, okay. Because we live in a post-Nazi world. Ah. And okay. And Hitler's greatest enemy was 
communism, and, there, and therefore to connect his Jewish birth with the whole philosophy of communism helped to justify Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's pray. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate that. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We're thankful that um, we have the leisure and the ability to uh, look at these things. And we thank you that you loved us so much that you called us to you so that while we can acknowledge these things exist and we can see what uh, the trouble that they cause and um, the despair that they create and the pain that they come from, it also gives us a better understanding of how to reach people who believe this stuff. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us an outward look and open arms for those who may think differently than us so that we can, by means of love, bring them into the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.